Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Hey, Modern Therapists, we're so excited to offer the opportunity for one unit of continuing education for this podcast episode. Once you've listened to this episode, to get CE credit, you just need to go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, register for your free profile, purchase this course, pass the post-test, and complete the evaluation. Once that's all completed, you'll get a CE certificate in your profile, or you can download it for your records. For a current list of our CE approvals, check out moderntherapistcommunity.com. Once again, hop over to moderntherapistcommunity.com for one CE once you've listened. Woohoo! Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whittenhelm, Katie Vernoy, and this is our second in a two-part episodes for our CE content on doing therapy in non-traditional therapy settings. Part one was a lot about the logistics and clinical concerns. Part two, we are looking more at law and ethics concerns. We had made reference to a number of things as far as precautions to take. And if it's not written down, it's probably not something that you had thought about ahead of time. Or so the lawyers who are suing you would say. (laughs) So... (laughs) Some of the concerns and stuff that we're going to talk about here today is about, you know, avoiding any liability, minimizing liability that we can take into this episode. So, Katie, what are the most important things for us to talk about now? What are you hearing from some of the people who are consulting with you? And let's dive in from there. Sure. And just to clarify for folks that this is the first one, I would recommend going back to the previous CE episode. It's kind of a 101 on what walk and talk and home-based therapies are and clinical considerations, benefits, and how to do it. So definitely check back to that one. The most important thing is that we think about what we're doing ethically. Um, And and that's kind of what this conversation is going to be about. But I think the first place to start is to look a little bit at why there has been such a hesitation around employing, especially therapies like outdoor walk and talk kind of therapies. I think home-based has been around for a while, but there's been hesitation just in any kind of non-traditional setting. And part of it really stems from provider anxiety or kind of the rigidity that we can have around what therapy looks like. Is it just in my office, in this safe space where I can control everything? And I think there's a lot of stereotypes around what therapy is. And 
And one of the articles I was reading, Cooley et al. 2021 put together an an article, Organizational Perspectives on Outdoor Talking Therapy in the British Journal of Clinical Psychology. Cooley's done a lot of these things. In looking at the systemic pushback on this, what they really posited is that we need to get to a place of environmental safe uncertainty. And what that means, it's a position of openness, curiosity, and collaboration regarding the therapy environment, including the possibility of other environments being more conducive to therapy, other environments being not the office. And that leads me to kind of the first point, which is, is it unethical not to consider these environments? Because they may be more conducive to treatment than sitting in your nice little office. We have talked about in some of our previous presentations about how much of our field is modeled around clinician comfort and clinician principles rather than necessarily what's best for clients. And some of those are logistical concerns. You know, we can't always just, you know, stack six or seven clients in a day back to back if it means that we're having to also travel to different parts of a city or county or you know much further if you're working in rural practices. If what we're going to is kind of the the core principles of have the first stance of like do no harm, but our second mm-hmm. stance is do good. Yes. And, exactly. And you know, this is that that push pull between those two concepts is the environment of our office is one that is hopefully set up best for do no harm. And it's kind of in that good enough for like doing good. Now, what I'm hearing is that aspirationally doing best is doing therapy where it's going to most benefit the client. Yes. And we do have, you know, some examples of this that, you know, for instance, Italy, as an example here, is a country that does not have mental hospitals, that it is about being able to work with people with mental illness in the environments that they live that kind of thrusts them into needing to have the right approaches to clinical intervention that leads them best into their day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we have America where we throw people in jail and kind of <laughs> ignore that mental illness might be a factor. And that's yes. not today's episode. No, no. Uh, but I, I, I think that that really hits at the crux of the, the argument here, which is there are people for whom home-based or walk-and-talk therapy is the best form of treatment And so the best way we get to a a system that supports it is holding this environmental safe uncertainty, which is being able to be open and safely open to the idea that we can be in an uncertain environment. Uh, Another systemic concern, which I think gets in the way and and dances around with some of our, our ethics and laws is payers and payment. Now, insurance coverage, you know, Medicaid, for those of you in the United States, oftentimes cover, covers a lot of this stuff, but there are concerns around driving time and is that billable? I know we had a huge argument around that when I was competing in mental health, but, but if you are a private practitioner and you're needing to then charge extra to drive to a, a client's home, for example, 
Or do you, on the flip side, decrease your fees if you let go of your office and you're only seeing people in these non-traditional spaces? And it really puts this thing of around payment of, of are we being limited by payers, whether it's insurance payment or how much someone can afford to pay on what treatments we can offer. And we, at least there's a, a camp ethics code 3.11 or 3.11 that says we actually have to tell people about options for treatment, even if their, their insurance company doesn't cover it. So much around payment is going to be in the, we charge for services that we actually provide. Yes. We let our consumers know what we're actually going to provide so that way they can opt into what is best for them. And that's going to take a, a couple of different forms here. Like, you know, on one hand, you're talking about, you know, managed care system, but keep in mind that these ethics codes are written in a way that helps to maybe hit kind of the best catchment of every type of practice in being able to write them. And so I'm going to start not with managed care systems here first. I'm going to start sure. with, you know, those private practices that are all cash pay or, or doing super bills. Mm -hmm. You might, you know, have a client where you say, all right, I can go and see you at your house but it's also going to take me time to drive there. And this is roughly how long it's going to take me to drive here. Here's my driving fee. You cannot put that driving time as session provided time on something like a super bill. Those are sure. actually two separate line items. And so this is that recommendation of charge appropriately for the services that you're providing. Now, what you're speaking to and going back to the managed healthcare part of it is that that drive time isn't an option. And so therefore, it kind of thrusts some of the business practices to, if they're going to operate efficiently, maybe not allow for that kind of time to sit there in the middle. It is a possibility with maybe things like you know, a, a private health insurance company that you can still tack on that drive time to those clients. That's just being able to get to a different service. Insurance probably isn't going to reimburse it. But I think that, you know, in my limited knowledge of some of the federal healthcare systems, I don't think that that's going to be an option there. Well, and I think with some of the, the systems that require those things like Medicaid, Medi-Cal, Medicare, you know, some of those payers, they're going to have their own rules. And whether drive time is billable or not, I think is something that you want to pay attention to. I think the the challenge is, is when it's your own private practice. And do you have it as a separate separate line item? Or do you just charge more for the service? You know, is there is there an issue with saying, I'm going to raise my fee x amount, and I'm going to spend 30 minutes driving to client A and zero minutes driving to client B, but they're both paying the same amount. Is there a concern there? Yes. And it's going to fall under those usual and customary amounts. And mm -hmm. again, there's probably going to be people who do this kind of stuff anyway, and just kind sure. of all lump it into one sort of payment and don't pay much mind to it. 
Uh, when clinicians are being examined for what is your actual, usual, and customary, be prepared for questions like, how do you figure that out? If somebody sure. is to look at client A, where it's, all right, you've got this 30-minute drive time incorporated into this fee, what's the justification for the exact same type of services just being provided in your office, having a completely different fee? And you need to be able to reasonably and prudently explain the differences between those two, because when it comes to what your usual and customary fee is, it's also the justification for those fees that needs to be explained. And I think the the equity and the the ability to do a fair payment for all clients, there's arguments in both directions in that if if on average I spend X amount of time driving and I don't charge individual clients for driving, you're saying that's not okay. Correct. If I, if I go if I go all over town and client A is a th- typically a 30-minute drive, sometimes they're a 90-minute drive, client B is usually a 10-minute drive, but sometimes they're a 40-minute drive, I need to charge them differentially is what you're telling me. You need to charge for what you're actually doing and you need to do that appropriately and you need to have that kind of stuff set up up front. Okay. And, and especially with our No Surprises Act being introduced in America here in 2022, is there's a potential that if you're having kind of these traffic concerns as you're describing, that it's a separate line item that you're going to need to put in your good faith estimates to clients because the whole point of this is that it's not to surprise clients with your billing. Yeah. And the best way of of protecting yourself on that is putting that information in writing ahead of time and having sure. the client see it and agree to it. Yeah. And I think there there's there could also potentially be an argument just having a specific fee for home-based services. So here's the session fee, here's the home-based services fee. But you're saying if somebody's further away, I got to charge them more. I'm saying that it needs to be commensurate and clear with your policies. That <laughs> all right, all right, all right. We we don't want to get stuck there. If that results in a higher fee, then that's commensurate with whatever policies you have. All right, all right. Uh, so there may be some fee stuff to sort out if you're doing this, especially if you're driving a lot of distance uh, most days. Uh, some of the recommendations that I, I've given to folks in the past is setting up what I would call catchment areas. So on Monday, I'm this in this area of town. Tuesday, I'm in this area of town. On Wednesday, I'm this area of town. Um, and on Thursday, I'm at, at the walk and talk location by my office or whatever, right? Like sure. you, you, you know, just so that you diminish those differences. However, regardless of, of setting that up and, and potentially putting systems in place, there is still going to be unpredictability. And that can be due to a lot of different things. So you've got the unpredictability of the environment, which we talk about in detail in our previous episode. But there's also this unpredictability on if you're outside, what the weather's like. If you're going to someone's home, if they have visitors, and I think there's there's those types of things where when you have so little control, the system says, no, don't do this. Don't do this. This is scary. So as a resident of Southern California, where our weather is usually 75 and sunny, I you know find myself traveling to other places in the country sometimes where I forget that weather 
is different like yeah at there's all. weather's a thing in places kurt i know yeah. it seems weird to us but there's actually weather <laughs> other places so our, my informed consent is being cognizant that people are not fragile little beings and that they can make their own decisions about things sure. but it does make mention of weather does happen and it's your responsibility to be dressed appropriately for it. And that's at least like, this is a foreseeable thing that can happen. Uh, Yes. And 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 we'll, we'll we'll go into more of this in the informed consent section, because we could dig into this very deeply, especially the, the fragile little beings. (laughs) But um, but I think just as far as kind of the overarching systems concerns, just to close this out, I think the other pushback that often hap- that often happens is scheduling and getting permission for the services that are provided, whether it's getting permission to go into someone's home, school, or office, whether it's scheduling to get to a certain location. I know I've had to shift clients by 15 or 20 minutes to get to walk back to my office <laughs> between sessions. And I think the difficulty with that means that you have to be able to navigate those things with your clients because, well, if we're in the office, it'll be at this time. If we're at the park, it'll be at this time. And if we're in video, it'll be, you know, like it's, it's something where navigating those concerns, I think can be very hard for some clients because they want their exact time every single week. And as we mentioned in the first episode, this is a little bit more of that dynamic practicing that you need to be able to respond in any sort of given situation. And, and it's having backup plans, you know, on the days where there is inclement weather, it might change that. All right. We're not meeting at the park. We're actually meeting at an office instead, or, Mm -hmm. and doing video, doing telehealth. And that might affect a start time. And I think it's, prudent of therapists to make sure that we revisit that as a possibility fairly frequently with our clients. So that way it's not a surprise when and if it does come up. Yes. Yes. And I think just allowing for that in the conversation. So, so that's kind of the high level systems concerns. I think we've addressed those well enough. I I, I think that the brunt of our conversation is really going to be around the legal and ethical concerns that a lot of people bring up that are yes. kind of more individual with your client, the things that you have to grapple with, not just as a system, can we say it's okay to do this thing? Some of the thoughts I, I'm sharing are, are from an article, uh, Boland 2018 Ethical Considerations for Providing Home-Based Services for Homebound Individuals. It's obviously there's there's some specific things to folks who are homebound and and I want to mention those things because if you're doing home-based therapy, it could be for someone that is homebound for mental health reasons or physical reasons. But it also talks, I think, sufficiently around the types of things that you might encounter in an environment that is not yours, that you don't control. Accessibility. I think is is one of the reasons that people cite to do this, to go to people's homes, meet them where they're at. They don't have to to drive, those kinds of things. But it's also a complaint, especially around walk and talk therapy. And so there is a value in a lot of the ethical codes around accessibility, about providing therapy across the board. And in, in my thoughts, you know, like there's physical abilities and accessibility that you want to make sure if you're doing a physical activity together, 
you know, where we can make sure that you're able to walk together. Or if you, if someone is, is not able to walk that, that if they would like to be outdoors, you can provide them space to do that, whether it's in a wheelchair or in other types of, of settings or, or primarily sitting outdoors, those kinds of things. But, but it is, I think, a harder concept around, okay, if I've got someone who is disabled or who has another challenge that, that outdoors might not work for, this may not be an accessible modality for them. There's also just the physical concerns, and, and you'd already mentioned like they need to wear the right clothes, they need to do the things, but, but there is making sure that th- when they show up, they can access the service. So I wear a hat, and oftentimes during the summer I wear sunscreen, and you know I, I make sure that I've got the right shoes on. And so one of the things is, is looking at if someone comes unprepared for what you're signed up for, what do you do with that? I mean, you kind of just said, I leave it up to them. So I'm looking at the American Counseling Association's Code of Ethics here, and this is A6C, Documenting Boundary Extensions. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll paraphrase this, but it's if counselors extend boundaries, they must officially document prior to the interaction, when feasible, the rationale for such an interaction, the potential benefit and the anticipated consequences for the client. When unintentional harm occurs, the counselor must also show evidence of attempt to remedy such a harm. And I think that this is a really good and dynamic ethical code here because it says that what we talked about in the last episode and what we're going to get into with our informed consent discussion here in a little bit is that We need to anticipate what the consequences of situations are, Mm -hmm. but these are also things that are going to be dynamic, that if a client is showing up, doesn't have the right footwear, for example, you know, is going for a walk on a trail in flip-flops going to be something that is doable for them is you need to then document that you're having that conversation and that it it's up to them to be able to continue to opt into it. And if they do end up getting hurt, you do need to document like what it is that you're doing. So you can't just be like, well, all right, if you want to walk in flip-flops, that's on you. Like <laughs> be like, you know, there's the, there's the potential, like this is a long walk. This, these might not yeah. be stable enough shoes. You know, if the person gets a blister halfway around the loop, like, you know, you gotta be like, you need me to get you a band-aid? Like, do you want to wait here until, you know, you paramedics come? I think it's, I think all of those things are really important because to me, there's also the other element. And when you talk about extending boundaries, there's the element of I'm wearing those kinds of clothes. I may be in not as good physical shape as my clients as far as how fast I can walk, how long I can walk. I fell once and my client helped me up. Um, we'll talk about that in dual relationships a little bit later, but I think it's it's something where this is a little bit harder to to, to kind of cleanly say, is that are these forms of treatment accessible or not? And so the the question I have here <laughs> is do you need to be able to provide these options for all people? Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions 
and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Going back to what I said at the top of the episode is that sometimes you're going to provide therapy that is just based on clinician preference too. You know, when we talk about accessibility sort of things, we as individuals, and especially in, in private practices, don't need to absolutely make ourselves a hundred percent available in every single direction sure. for every single possible type of client. And this is where we do the good enough approach and we take steps to address situations that are more accommodating as those situations arise. And it may not be immediately, you know, you're talking about clients with disabilities or something that might affect mobility. Well, that might be a consideration that you look at as far as your office building or whether or not you participate in therapy outside of the office. Some of these situations are also going to come up with some of our able-bodied clients. You know, if you have a client who breaks their ankle in between sessions, that this is now something where you may not be prepared for that. What you're going to want to do is then stop, evaluate the situation, go through what the new risks and consequences of things are, be like, all right, man, like you got to hobble along on your crutches faster along with me. So that way we can make it around the loop. (laughs) Probably not a good recommendation there, but it's, you know, all right, we might not be able to have a full, you know, loop of sessions. You might be like left out there. Would you rather sit on a bench instead? Or would you rather meet via video? (laughs) There are those types of accessibility. And then I think there's also some of the things, and we started talking about this in the last episode, but for home-based clients, where do we only provide these things for folks living in certain neighborhoods, where we feel safe? You know, do we only provide home base for people that have a specific payer? I mean, or who can afford it? You know, I think it's it's something where I, I, I agree with you. I think we do the best that we can. And some of it has to have some boundaries around our own needs. You know, we can only afford what we can aff- afford to, to as far as you know, lowering fees. We can only do what we can do around our own safety and we want to protect our own safety. But I think there's that element of being aware, are you providing a service 
that is inaccessible in a way that is discriminatory. And I think in this situation, I think it's very much case by case. And I don't think that this is a reason that you would not consider using these ever. I think, I think accessibility issues are pretty navigatable in this situation. Sure. And to be a little bit more open about this, there's a couple of citations here that I want to point out. Uh, Lazarus, all the way back in 94, said one of the worst professional or ethical violations is that of permitting current risk management principles to take precedence over human interventions. And very much advocating for we should take these considerations into account and that it may be unethical to not open our practices to uh, being able to serve in a wider variety of communities. And the goal of this is to free therapists to intervene with clients' specific situations and presenting problems rather than just kind of sitting back and playing it in the safest way possible. Exactly. But speaking of being safe, <laughs> I think it's time for us to jump into the informed consent because I think it's truly important. I think all of the ethical codes talk about informed consent, and we definitely in these situations need a very strong informed consent. Yes. So I think first off, uh, we want to look at making sure that this is truly the client's choice, that the plan is created together. I know... There were times, at least during the pandemic for me, when I was ready to be face-to-face with folks. I was not ready for being in the office. And so I started doing walk and talk. And there were some clients that I told it to. And after I said it, I was like, that was just for me. <laughs> we did not end up doing walk and talk. I will I will put that out there. I was able to, to dial it back. But there was something that was like, hey, you want to meet me at the park? And they're like, um... That seems weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so to me, because we've talked about how in the previous episode that there was clinician benefit for being outdoors and walk and talk, mental health, well-being, all that good stuff, and, and also efficacy because you're more creative and your brain's working better. But, but that is not a reason to do it. Like it has to actually be co-created and the treatment plan needs to be collaborative. And I think that's something where it can be very easy to say, well, this is my new thing and we're all doing it. Or this is the only thing I do and you're going to do it versus let's see if if you're a match and I'll refer you out if I don't do other forms of therapy. So there's, there's two things that you're talking about here. One is the creating the plan together. Sure. And Some of this is also going to be based on clinician competence and actual services offered that, you know, a client may come in with ideas of what they want out of therapy, but if it's not something that you provide, you are still free to say no. Of course. And so I don't want anybody to feel like they, you know, have to absolutely twist themselves into knots in order to do something. If it's not something that you yourself are comfortable with. And, you know, as far as the place where you provide therapy, you're free to say like, you know, I only work out of the office or I'm only doing virtual sessions right now and giving those referrals like Katie's talking about. And I think that the point for the informed consent is to be very clear within the informed consent, how you're doing treatment and making sure that the client is opting into that 
versus what they imagine therapy to be? Because you, if you don't know how to describe it, how can they really know what they're opting in for? Yes. The other thing too is, especially with some of these more non-traditional therapy spaces, they really need to recognize it's voluntary mm-hmm. and that they can opt out at any time. And I think what, it seems obvious you know, to us, but there is the power differential. And I think there's also this element of when someone's doing a treatment that's specifically aligned to their location, ERP, desensitization, all the different kinds of things where somebody's kind of walking through something really challenging with their therapist, they need to know that they can opt out, that they have some control. That's just good therapy and not abusive therapy in the first place. Of course. I mean, some of this is going to be like, duh, this is the normal thing that we would do in an informed consent. It just is, it's a bit different if you and your client are on a trail (laughs) (laughs) and letting them know you can opt out and walk back and (laughs) I will, I will finish the loop or I will follow you back, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I think people need to know that they have control and autonomy and this is their treatment and not the clinician's dictation of what's going to happen. And in addition to that, you as the therapist leading the conversation on how is this working out for you that Mm -hmm. extends that action to not just waiting for clients to then passively opt out and just like leave you standing at a park the next week when you're supposed to be meeting there. Sure. Yeah. Specifically to the outdoor therapy, there are the health issues. And I think... One of the things I looked at talked about doing a health screening questionnaire. I feel a little concerned about scope of practice there, potentially a physician note or some sort of approval. But I've also seen consent for treatments that just have an attestation that I'm taking my own risks and I'm healthy enough to do this. Where do you stand on that, Kurt? I think that it's important that considerations be factored into it. And again, where I'm always a little weirded out that our profession treats people as both incredibly fragile and capable of making every decision in their life at the same time. So I like that the informed consents have you're opting into this and you're taking care of your physical health as part of that consideration. It at least speaks to us thinking of, well, this could be a risk. And especially in more litigious areas, you know, if you're going to get sued by somebody, this is, again, reducing liability because you can always imagine that opposing counsel in a deposition saying, well, why didn't you consider that this client might be uh, not a good candidate for getting physical exercise? So uh, it at least is something that allows for you and your attorney in that situation to say, they attested that they could and that they were medically cleared for it. You know, oddly, I see the same kind of language in things like sporting events, like marathons and 10 Ks and five Ks where it's like (laughs) you've, you physically fit person theoretically have cleared that you're medically okay to come in and do this. At worst, it's a line to check off in your informed consent And at best, it's something that really does help to limit some of that liability for you. Another element with that is 
potentially like someone who is allergic to bees or to bee stings or, or some of the things that you may want to be aware of if you're outdoors with someone. I, I feel like that could be a separate conversation and or something that goes into the informed consent. I, I have mixed feelings there. There, there's always going to be, no pun intended, there's always going to be <laughs> something that inevitably gets left off of a list like that, you know, and, and there's got to be a natural line, like, you know, how specific do you have to be with things like allergies? Like, you know, you're going to be exposed to potentially to tree pollen and, uh, you know, if you're walking by a dog park, you know, animal dander. Sure, uh, so. Sure. I like that there's at least something that points to you attest to, you know, if you're speaking to a client, you attest to that you are medically and physically capable of being in these environments as cleared by a medical professional. And you accept all risks that go along with being outside where you're potentially exposed to nature. I would almost add, and this was this was something suggested in in one of the things I was reading, is that you kind of encourage them to tell you if there's anything you should know. I think if someone's allergic to pollen and it's spring, I think, okay, I don't need to know that. But if someone is deathly allergic to bees, I want to be aware of that so that I know to call the an ambulance when if, if someone gets a bee sting now cl- granted they could tell me that in the moment <laughs> um but but i don't know if i raise my liability if i'm aware that they have that that concern most attorneys will do a very good job of finding some way to make you know that you should have been aware okay and you know, so it's kind of that naivete is not a protection and sure. especially intentional naivete. So it's a basically a longer version of the question that you ask. Any concerns about you being outside and walking around physically? You know, that this is the kind of terrain that we're going to walk on. Generally well-maintained sidewalks, at times sidewalks with cracks in them. You're potentially crossing the streets in a couple of areas or walking on the street for sections without sidewalks. If you're walking on a trail in a park, it's unpaved, maintained grounds that, you know, has potential tripping hazards. Uh, You can put some of those language things in there that, again, you're going for reducing liability. You're not going to be expected to protect against everything here. And I think just for to to close that one up, I think I would put something to the effect of you're attesting that you're fine medically and that you will inform the therapist if there's anything they should know. Yes. So another thing that should go into the informed consent are confidentiality challenges and how you're going to manage those. But we're going to do a whole section on that. So I want to skip that one really quickly. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and go to clinician safety, because I think this is one that I was surprised in reading through uh, the informed consent suggestions that clinician safety was there. I don't con- concern myself with this pri- for walk and talk therapy. I think that probably is something where I'm having at least a little bit of control over the environment. And so I'm opting in. This is more for home based where you're 
contracting basically with your client if there's anything that they need to manage for clinician safety. So this is locking up pets. This is potentially if there are family members that are very much uh, against treatment and maybe have even threatened the clinician, or if there's, or if there are family members that just are going to be mean, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but that there are some safeguards in place and, and talking about how the clinician is going to be remaining safe in those situations. And I think that the more clear that you can be with any of the, these things, the better, because again, you're looking for an open collaborative process here in order for me to be able to help, you know, it, again, coming back to like allergies, things, if a clinician has a strong allergy to something like perfumes, that might be a barrier to treatment when it comes to a clinician visiting someone's household. Yeah, And these are the things where, yeah, you move up to, you know, having pets secured. If there has been a threat from a family member, you're going to have to address that with your client as far as, all right, I can't be in that environment and provide you therapy. We need to find something else to do. So again, coming back to that problem solving, alleviating this, the, the part of the problem and developing a new treatment strategy from there. And I think exactly what you said. I think that the, the biggest piece of that is maybe not even delineating all the, the, clinician safety concerns. I mean, if there's specific ones, like I have these kinds of allergies or whatever, you may want to have that in there. <laughs> but even just say if the clinician is not be is not able to ensure security, their own security, the session may be discontinued. I know for myself, it seems obvious. And I think this is something that actually is good both for kind of newer clinicians or clinicians under supervision, as well as clients to think about this. But if you're in a client's home and something happens where you feel like your life is at risk, or if you feel like you're in danger, you should leave. Yes. Immediately. Absolutely. Whether or not the client is in a high state of risk, whatever, the clinician must protect their own safety immediately. And I think clients should, should know that, that they, this is what they can do to mitigate the risk for the clinician. And if that risk is not sufficiently reduced or, or if there is a risk there that the clinician's not comfortable with that they'll end the session and or suggest an alternate location to have that session. Because no matter how ineffective you maybe you will be more in ineffective if you are dead or incapacitated. <laughs> True story. <laughs> and along the lines of plans, I think it's also important to have whatever plans you know for, you know, that you can have for handling known risks. For me, COVID precautions, I've definitely incorporated those into all of my informed consents. And so if you are only doing home visits for folks who wear masks or only have certain levels of vaccination status or whatever. I think those things need to be very clear. Uh, I think that there's the plans around the uncertainty of the weather, backup plans. And then I think a big one that I think all of us have been playing around with our uh, cancellation policies. I know that 
many of us have shifted our very stringent cancellation policies to basically say, if you're sick, do not come see me in person. (laughs) Yes. But I think other cancellation policies around rain, you know, or if it's raining, we will switch to video. If you've got a visitor, what are you going to do? I think being able to to talk about ways that you can minimize the negative impact on the practice, because we are businesses, we need to, to be able to run and we need to make our money, um, but also that makes sense and that are clearly stated in your informed consent. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. And one thing that I noticed with some of my clients that I was seeing outside of the office is what you do when the time changes and it gets dark way earlier and is no yes. longer an appropriate place. So again, this all falls under that foreseeable consequences and adapting to them and documenting that these processes have happened all along. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think all of that stuff is, is really important to be in the informed consent just to, to kind of run through just for, for those of you who are taking notes you want to make sure that they're aware of voluntary participation, that they're actually consenting for treatment. And, and actually, you may need collateral participation, consent for treatment, um, for if you're doing stuff in home, if, if like a sibling or a fa- parent or another family member is going to pop in time to time, making sure they know what they're opting into. Health statement and potential plans around taking care of that, confidentiality and how to handle it, which we'll go into more detail on, clinician safety, any plans for handling known risks. I think those are really important. There may be other things, but those all need to go into informed consent. And I think the, the question on this topic that I think, well, the first one was, can people really know what they're opting into? And I think we've talked about, yes, I think we, we need to understand it and explain it to them. Yes. But you talked about kind of being left standing, the therapist, you know, kind of forlornly standing in the park by themselves and the client doesn't show up. And that's called passive termination, right? The client just ghosts the therapist. Yes, exactly. But the interesting thing, and this was in the article around the homebound uh, therapists, uh, homebound clients, were that if you were going to a client's home, they cannot passively terminate because you just keep showing up. I mean, I guess they cannot answer the door. And I'm sure you had those. I've definitely had those uh, long ago where they cannot be there. But it's very hard, especially for someone who is completely homebound and cannot leave, to passively terminate services. And is that okay? We have a responsibility as therapists to ensure that the services that we're providing are effective with our clients. And one of the best ways of doing that is talking with our clients about it. And while the situation that you're describing may not allow for that passive opting out, there should be some sort of approach that therapists are taking to regularly evaluate how the treatment is going. 
for my feedback-informed treatment listeners out there, this is already built into just about every session that you're doing things. But for those who aren't engaged in that, we do have the responsibility of coming back and evaluating how are we doing on our goals? How, how's our treatment plan looking? And th- that should be done with some regular sort of interval, whether it's time-based, whether it's number of session-based, that if we're aware that clients can't passively opt out of sessions, we should take on some of that responsibility of giving them more of an active opportunity to opt out of sessions. Absolutely. And I think the other piece is also for us to continue to assess appropriateness, because another thing mentioned in there was that they may not want to terminate due to loneliness. And so we we have a responsibility to make sure that treatment's still necessary and that we're providing them with only the services that they need and not just being a buddy that comes see, to see them every week. Yes. So moving on to bigger stuff, that was kind of what needs to go, what kind of the, the issues around informed consent. But now looking, I want to spend a little bit of time on confidentiality as well as the potential for dual relationships, because I think those are the big things. When we think about these types of services, I think those are the big things that are the big juicy things that we should be paying attention to. And and starting with confidentiality, I think we cannot completely guarantee confidentiality, I don't think. But I think there's a lot of ways we can mitigate the risks. And so what are some of the things that come to mind when you think about confidentiality in either these public spaces or in someone's home? So the the biggest things, and again, looking at it from limiting your liability standpoint, is talking about the potential risks and benefits of what this is. And so the risks are other people can overhear what we're talking about. Yeah. We might need to speak in a more coded way. And really talking about the, the limit of confidentiality, much more fluid when it's outside of the office than when it is inside the office, because there is just that potential of being overheard. And I think what can compound that at home is that you might be overheard by the person that you're talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> or they may come in or they may do the things. Or you may want to introduce them, or there may be, you know, kind of a fluidity of them coming in and out of sessions. And so I think just being very clear on that, but I think as far as the CYA elements of it, I think if they're going to be part of treatment, you do the collateral consent form. But I think making sure that if there are folks that are going to regularly be interacting, you want to get release forms. You can't obviously, you're not going to do that for the folks at the park. Those are people who are just walking by. Sure. <laughs> but like people in the home, you know, you may want to consider that. Well, and it's also part of what we're talking about and to be specific about it is asking our clients how they would want us to handle those situations where there are other people in the house or where we are walking by other people outside. Help the client be able to make their own informed decision of and take some ownership over those situations as well. Absolutely. The big piece is outside. I think clients don't necessarily know and and don't have the experience to think about how they want to handle it because it could be just let's 
you know, we'll just pay attention. And if somebody walks by, maybe we either speak more in a more coded way, or we break for a second and then pick back up once we pass these people or whatever. But I think if someone comes up to you or to your clients, people they know, or people that know you actually having the conversation is if someone comes up and talks to us, what are we going to (laughs) say? You know, and, and I've heard, you know, like you can say, this is a colleague, this is someone I work with. Uh, it can, it can be a lot of different things. Maybe it can be, this is my babysitter. This is my teacher. It could be, this is my therapist. Hey, meet my therapist. I mean, they get to decide, but I think if you have some ideas around how to manage that, then it, it can feel a little bit little less daunting for them because I don't think that they necessarily immediately are like, oh yeah, I live in this community and I'm walking around with my therapist. Oh, oh, now I have to think about it. I don't think that's the first thing they think of when they commit to walk and talk therapy. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed this kind of trend change. And again, I work with younger population teens. Earlier in my career, it was just kind of like, oh, I, I, don't want to necessarily, you know, let people know that I'm getting help. And teens these days are just kind of like basically shouting out like, I'm with my therapist like this. You need help. This guy's great. Like, so <laughs> I, I, I point this out that there has been kind of a, a lot of these principles and guidelines that were written when therapy was a lot more hidden in the shadows. Sure. And I think with a lot more emphasis on mental health, that it's still important for us to have these conversations. My experience and the experience of a lot of the colleagues that I know has been that it's less and less of a concern. We still need to ask the questions, but people aren't as shamed by it in the general population. I know that there's still some cultural considerations where still getting therapy in some cultures is going to be a sign of mental illness. That's why we still ask, but sure, uh, sure. The, the trends are pretty positive on this. And I, and I think that's very fair. And I think that there are going to be different things based on age differences on what your role in the world is. I think some folks are fine saying that they're, in therapy, but maybe not like this is my therapist. And so I think definitely ask. And I think the the other element of this is the c- confidentiality may be lost more passively. Mm-hmm. So it's not just somebody coming up t- to you, but maybe someone noticing that you and your therapist are walking the park every every week at the same time, or you're coming to their home every week, you know, in your particular car with your particular, you know, kind of characteristics. And so it's, it's something to consider because people will be, will need to be aware of the types of confidentiality that they're losing by having these types of services. But I'm sure that people that go into your building, most of the people sitting around are going like, they're going to therapy. Cause like how many therapists are in that building? Like a bazillion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And so people may lose confidentiality by going to their therapist's office. And so I think the the location thing, I feel a little less concerned about, but I do think it is something uh, to be aware of and for clients to be aware of as well. And a lot of the confidentiality factors, as a reminder to our clinicians and to any clients who are maybe hearing this is 
confidentiality is only the strongest where you have the expectation of not being seen or heard by a third party. And our discussions up to this point are really that even in the waiting rooms of therapy offices, there's not an expectation of privacy there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, your point of even walking into the building or, or walking around, we can point out like, hey, there's not that guarantee of confidentiality like if we were in my office. Sure. Uh, I think the other thing, and, th- and this is kind of a, a juicy question for us to to dig into for a minute or two, is boundaries versus confidentiality. And mm-hmm. walk and talk, maybe you're you're standing closer than the the COVID guidelines were and that kind of stuff, so you can keep close. But really the one that I think is the toughest is if you're going into a client's home, they don't live alone. And, and I guess if they live alone, there's a whole other thing. But but the the option for meeting privately is in the client's bedroom. And I yeah. think that becomes very complex. It also speaks to the next one we're going to talk, the next section on dual relationships. But I think this is a really, it's it depends for me on the client. Sometimes it'll be, I'm meeting with the client in their room, but with the door open and we're talking quietly. So there's a little bit of space. Sometimes it's I'm in the room with the door closed. You know, I, I think it really is client by client and and the type of boundaries that need to be held. But I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of risk that could be in this particular negotiation because you're either like, hey, we have to be in a public space and everyone can hear us or we're in your bedroom and the door is closed. And this is also got a whole lot of needing to negotiate things with clients, potentially with parents. Yeah. Um, and the is something where, you know, being in a child client's bedroom and doing play therapy on the floor sounds a lot more reasonable, but being behind a closed door with a child's might also be something where Mm -hmm. there poses risk. So this is not just a matter of any one particular characteristic of a client. And it's something that you need to thoroughly evaluate every single time that you do it and take and document the proper precautions document people document just just document and i think the the other thing if there are more than one private room i think if you can be in a room with the door closed without a bed in it i think that actually is quite helpful i think it is a little strange sitting on a client's bed if that's the only place to sit and you're with a an adult client <laughs> um it just it, it gets really complicated and so i think being being really aware of what the situation is documenting it and if you can't find a good space inside, maybe you just kind of you head outside. <laughs> uh, but dual relationships uh, clearly do not have sex with your clients. There is no sex uh, in professional therapy or professional therapy does not include sex. That is obvious. That's one of the things about you don't sit on the client's bed. You don't even want to get close to that, right? Yes. Or maybe you do, but you d- document why it's okay to do that. But We've talked about this before. You also cannot become your client's friend, which can feel very easy if you're hanging out at the park, there's a nice breeze and you're, you know, shooting the breeze and or you're you're hanging out their house and and they're serving you up a little bit of 
tea and and crumpets. I, I don't know. There was a lot of British uh, articles when we were reading this, but like there is a lot of ways where we become very casual, and it can feel very much like a friendship if we don't watch out. And that's that's potentially a very unhealthy and harmful dual relationship. Yeah, and I see this from time to time, and it's it's really when the therapist stops holding the boundaries is not coming back to talking about therapeutic goals. It's relying a little bit too much on the personal shared experiences, rapport building in session Mm -hmm. 78 that's, you know, (laughs) already been well-established that makes it very hard for clients to be able to, really differentiate what actual therapy is happening there. As we've said before, not all dual relationships are problematic. Of course, you don't, you cannot avoid all dual relationships. And in this case, you're going to have some dual relationships that you just have to make sure to navigate becoming their friend or having sex with them. No, but you will be a fellow traveler, a fellow walker down the path. You will be potentially in their home and there may be some host guest dynamics that you end up having to, to navigate there. Those things are not necessarily harmful. There's certainly things to pay attention to. And there's a humanity that comes into it. It's just you have to keep coming back to the therapeutic alliance, the professional relationship, and the treatment goals. One other thing before we move on is that there are specific needs, I think, for folks who are homebound due to medical reasons. And one of the things that they were paying attention to were if you're with a client and doing a therapy session and they need to roll over and they can't do that themselves, or if they have any other physical needs, there's that that confidentiality boundary thing again. It's like, do you keep their home health aid in there with them or do you not? And you you roll them over or you plump up their pillow or those kinds of things. And I think really being comfortable with being a human and and holding that with your professional identity, I think is really helpful. I, I worked for a while with folks who um, had HIV and AIDS, and there were definitely times when if they were very sick, the relationship by nature needed to shift. And so when I was sitting with them at their bedside, it was going to be something where I might help I might pl- fluff up their pillow and it it felt per- particularly connecting rather than a boundary crossing. And a lot of our traditional advice in this particular area of practice has been don't do something that is not part of your role. And that's most of most of the time still going to be the best advice to follow here. And again it's consult it's mm-hmm. being able to not take the sole responsibility of these decisions. It's being able to document those boundary crossings and what the effects of them were. But in some of these healthcare type situations that you're talking about, it may end up being where you also then need to advocate for the client to get the kind of help that they need. Sure. That is just falling upon you because you may be the one who's visiting them at that time. Sure. And and I know we talked about when I fell and a client helped me up, but I think if, if your client falls, 
well, I can't touch them. There's no physical contact. And ASW 1.10 says no. I mean, like, I think we, we can be humans and help someone up as well. And we can help them across a, a, a curb or something. I mean, I think that there are, are things that are going to be a little bit different. And I think certainly consult, don't sit, sit in this in isolation and document. But I think it's it's more harmful not to be a human in this space than it is helpful to stick with these really harsh, strong professional boundaries. As we're running low on time, I want to just mention some therapist concerns, things that we should really consider before getting started, because I think you know that's kind of the last piece. And mm-hmm. as we said, we'll we'll make sure that we can put together some ideas around informed consent, and we'll we'll include those in the course that you can get over at uh, moderntherapistcommunity.com. But Truly, you want to check on your malpractice insurance as well as liability. Make sure that your insurance coverage is complete so that you can do what you need to do. Um, We've talked about kind of your own logistics around commute or those types of things. Make sure that you think about those things so that you're not unduly burdening yourself or your clients. Certainly make sure that you are doing this for the client's benefit and not solely yours. (laughs) (laughs) And, And truly make sure that you are competent to do these services. It means dig into what we did here, but there's a lot more that can be could be said about doing these types of services, but also make sure that if part of the reason you're doing these services is due to them being home-based, there may be a different, different diagnosis, a different type of thing that's happening. And so really consider all the comorbidities, all of the co-occurring disorders. And again, training, consultation, supervision, make sure that you're really doing what you need to do to show up for you in the ways that you can for these clients. And document all of your decisions, continue to consult. Even if you think that you are an expert in all things, non-traditional therapy settings, (laughs) don't go at it alone. And uh, check out our show notes. You can find our references there at mtsgpodcast.com and follow us on our social media. Join our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group, and listen just a little bit longer. You'll find out how to get your CEs for this episode if you desire. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Renoy. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code modern gets you two free months. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like one unit of continuing education for listening to this episode, go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, purchase this course, and pass the post-test. A CE certificate will appear in your profile once you've successfully completed the steps. Once again, that's moderntherapistcommunity.com. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.